Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. As we saw, and as you can verify when you look up into the sky tonight, there's objects out there and there's space. That's basically what the world consists of. And the two dimensions are within you. And humans have become lost in one. So we are here to realize that dimension. It cannot be realized in the future. It cannot be made into an object of a search because it's here now. The moment you're looking for it, you create a future. Now, what is future? It's a thought form. Apart from that, there is no future except as a thought form. cannot come except as now. So it's now the arising of space consciousness or the realization of space consciousness is here now. For example, it happens when you acknowledge not only the words that you hear. Acknowledge simply means pay attention. Notice. Just as noticing here, there are two dimensions just the same as when you look up into the sky at night, you will find there are two dimensions. There are the words here. And there's a silent space or stillness. in which the words happen.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. The easiest thing for us to do to just show up and be very present, but it has become also the hardest thing for us to do. There's always something in the soul either pulling us very far backwards, sort of in the past, or we're living from a place of enormous expectations which aren't even matching our current qualifications, our current truths, our current reality. So, of course, we're not as contented as we want to be. We're not feeling a sense of sacredness in our lives, and definitely it plays out in everything that we encounter, whether it's relationships, health, our finances, every way that we express ourselves coming from the way that we're feeling, whether we want to accept it or not. It's a very unique thing. And when I look at even the whole energy of money and finance and these things, you you tend to recognize that the way that you think of yourself has a lot to do with the way you either attract it, sustain it, or perhaps pass it on, lose it. And I remember the saying I came across a while back by Ayin Rand, and he said, money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you wish, but it will not replace you as a driver. And I've often thought that was always such a beautiful saying that makes me keep remembering the importance of just the way I show up has a lot to do with our basic sense of purpose and economy and flow. And we're in a time period that I've never seen so many folks focused on the energy of money in a way that it's just so materially driven, but not spiritually driven. And as a result of that, there are a lot of people within our system that I suspect are really being taken advantage of or just being forgotten just because we're not able to come from a more spiritual interpretation of who we are in order to feed that in all the other areas of society, whether it's through the climate, the way we take care of Mother Earth, relationship, health, the mental, the emotional state that we're supposed to deal with things, the way science is functioning now. So much of it is driven by definitely the need to help society, but then it becomes taken over by the powers that be, and it no longer really serves everyone. It serves those who can afford. Today, it's my privilege to introduce to you our special guest, which I came across, I don't know, somebody, I was on an email and somebody sent me a message about Charles Eisenstein and says, Sister Jenna, I think this person will be perfect for the AM radio. And so... It gives me great pleasure to welcome Charles Eisenstein, who is the author of several books, including Sacred Economics, Climate, A New Story, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. He is also a public speaker and a widely published essayist focusing on themes such as civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. He's been a guest on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday, and today gives me great privilege to welcome Charles Einstein to the air. Hi, Charles. So glad that you could make Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm happy to be here. I'm doing well. Yes, good to hear that. So you have been touching on a lot of things that have been helping us to think a whole lot deeper. Were you just automatically born a deeper thinker, or were there certain events that took place in your life that started to move you towards this direction? Well, I think I was always one of those kids who liked to dream and like to think. I was very inward. I didn't have any extraordinary experiences that launched me out of the normal timeline into something else. I'm Mm. fairly normal as far as that goes. (laughs) And what's your definition of normal? (laughs) Well, you know, like I didn't overcome cancer at the age of three. I didn't have a near-death experience. I'm not in communication with ETs as far as I know. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I don't see fairies and angels. I'm in a way 
a fairly normal person, which mm. because at the same time, I also have understandings and perceptions that are in a way revolutionary. Yes, and yes. I think that's a, a barometer of the collective consciousness. If a normal mm-hmm. person like me is having these perceptions, then we must all be really close. I really love the way you put that. It reminds me of Carolyn Mace, who always reminds us that, you know, so many people walking around thinking they're so special. Well, they have this special gift, and she'll always tell you, no, mm-hmm. you're not. Just, you know, deal with yourself. Sort out where you are and what you're in. And I love the fact that you said, okay, I think I'm just normal. It's just that there's certain things that I'm catching at a collective conscious level, and it just seems like I'm the one that's putting it on paper and writing about it and talking about it, and it's doing something. And I appreciate that I've never quite heard anyone explain their, what I would call, advanced thinking in such a beautiful and humble way. Thank you for that. In an essay, you wrote that when you began writing books, you had high hopes that someday you would be discovered, so to speak, and that your message would reach millions of people and change the world for the better. Well, you said you later went through two-part disintegration of your ambition. How and why did your view of your mission actually change? (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about that, actually, in your introduction, when you were talking about money and how we turn from what might have started as really idealistic then gets Mm -hmm. hijacked. And so, yeah, you know, I definitely started with this, uh, with these ideals about, wow, these ideas can save the world and they're really (laughs) important. They're a medicine for our time. And then this other part of my brain began thinking, yeah, and Maybe it'll sell a million copies. And yeah, like this other thing took the creativity that had come from a place of deep service and began to build these ambitious castles in the air from it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, or actually fortunately, those ambitions didn't come to fruition. I mean, now I could consider myself in conventional terms, maybe somewhat successful, but, you know, it's not like I'm a bestseller or anything like that. And that was a really generous act by the universe to not give me that outward success because Mm -hmm. I don't think that I'm stronger than anybody else as far as resisting those temptations. Mm. So I've been really, really blessed in that. Yeah. Mm. I don't think I answered your question exactly. Well, you know, let me decode it and kind of maybe insert myself in this without any ego. I know that we all change. We just change. And I think when we're younger, it's natural that we also pick up the collective energy of what we're expected to do and become before 35, right? And I don't know if you're 35 yet. But, you know, we get there, and then after a while we begin to level out, and we check or we ask ourselves, am I contented at the end of the day? You know, am I at peace with myself? And so we start to transform the interpretation behind why we show up and do the things that we do. Was that what you were saying? One thing that I was saying is that the less beautiful motives that I had, that I was rescued from those. And maybe my heart wasn't really in it. That's probably mm-hmm. it too, that there are certain things that you're supposed to do to be successful, ways to market yourself, ways to build your personal brand. I was like, okay, I should do this. But then when push came to shove and I actually had to do some work, I just could not make myself do these things because it just didn't feel good. To, yeah, yeah. You know, it seemed contrary to the message, which part of it is just what you said, that it's not that I'm not special because everybody is special, really. And there are people out there doing extraordinary things that I can't imagine being able to do. But to interpret those as, wow, if they're doing that, I must have incredible untapped <laughs> potential too. And human beings yeah, 
can be so much more than what we consider to be normal. So really, yes, none yes. of us are normal when the norm is to be the, to operate at the level that is considered normal today. Very powerful. It, that's one of the things, you know, Charles, that I love about the AM radio is it's just organically grown. We don't have a publicist. We don't have any major professionals branding. We just basically share the unfolding every day. And one of the things I've often loved is just my interaction between myself and the guest, the other person on the other line, and all of our listeners. It's just more like I feel like we are sitting in a living room just having a chit-chat about life. There's a lot going on in the world today, and unfortunately, a lot of people People are sitting in their living room talking about fear factors, you know, a lot of fearful things. You have referred to it as a society entering a space between stories in which mm-hmm. everything that seemed real, true, right, and permanent is now in doubt. And I remembered feeling that at a particular point in my life. How would you explain that what we're actually witnessing at this time? What's Charles's view of or interpretation of what we're going through? Yeah. So many people are observing that we don't just face one crisis right now as a society. There are multiple Mm -hmm. crises that are converging all at the same time. My understanding of it is that the seeds of these crises were sown uh, hundreds or even thousands of years ago and that they all come from a common source. The source being the basic story that we tell ourselves about who we are, what's real, what's possible, what's important, how the world works. It's a mythology, and I name it the story of separation, that says that who you are is a discrete, separate being in a world of other, governed by force and you know, the forces of physics, in a world that doesn't have the qualities of a self. The world is just a bunch of stuff out there, and you are a separate individual competing with other separate individuals. That's the basic story that modern science and modern thinking in general has bestowed upon us. Mm-hmm. And that story generates all of our crises. For example, the ecological crisis, if you believe that the world is just a bunch of stuff and not a sacred being, then why not treat it as a pile of resources and a waste dump? If you believe that we are fundamentally driven to maximize the self-interest of a separate self, then our whole money system, which generates competition and anxiety and scarcity, that is totally natural as well. If mm-hmm. Or our medical system, if we look at the world as hostile or at best indifferent, then our well-being comes through greater and greater control over the body, control over the bacteria, domination, and conquest. Like all of these things, you could apply it to, to politics, you could apply it to every realm, the war on the other, the war on the self. And so basically, this program based on that story of achieving a perfect society or perfect health or a perfect self through winning a war on the other, through ascending to mastery over materiality, that bringing very good results. Mm-hmm. Good, maybe 50 years ago, we were science was about to conquer all disease and we were going to have space colonies and robot servants. And this program of technological ascendance is failing us. It's not bringing a better and better and better world. People are not happier or better off than their parents or their grandparents. And so Mm -hmm. this is the space between stories. We don't know anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How has it made you feel at a when you're in those quiet moments and you know, you're witnessing a lot of things dismantling? What are some of the feelings you are able to identify? For me it's I just feel I found myself sometimes being angry with myself because I feel a sense of powerlessness 
in initiating what's needed in the world. Now, please mm-hmm. know that I am not saying I am, but it's a feeling that comes over me because even though my world is in service to the greater good, my influence is very strong, very powerful, very meaningful, purposeful. I get this feeling, though, as if there's always something more that I have to tap into within me in order to initiate the shift that I want to see in the world. Have you ever had those moments where mm-hmm. you felt like that? Yeah, probably every day. Mm-hmm. There's, <laughs> there's a couple of emotions. So the feeling of powerlessness, I think, is ultimately rooted, for me at least, in a diversion of the energy of grief. Because mm-hmm. as this transition proceeds, there's a lot that will be lost. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of beauty in the old story and in the world built on that that is transitioning. So this grief, when it gets diverted by the story of the separate self, it turns into powerlessness for me because the story of the separate self says that nothing I do could possibly make very much of a difference because I'm only Mm. one person. And the powers that be in this world who are arrayed against change, they are much more powerful than I am. When And so the other, I'll go back to that in a second, but the other emotion is anger Mm -hmm. that really is a fierce desire of life to express itself when it is blocked then it gets angry and it wants to push even harder imagine a dandelion that's been paved over and it's pushing its way through that crack in this burst of anger like i'm gonna get through this and then that anger gets diverted onto hatred when we are offered the story of the perpetrator the story that the bad things in the world are caused by bad people So grief and anger both get diverted onto something else through the story of separation. And it happens to me just as much as anybody else. And for me, when I realize that the powerlessness is based on a story, and when I accept that I'm more than just a separate individual, that I'm interconnected and interexistent with everything, then I know that Mm -hmm. everything I do has cosmic significance. Yes. Yes, I get that. You know, I always call it in Raj Yoga meditation about we become so body conscious. It's what I learned, you know, which has been very powerful for me. But once my Mm -hmm. thoughts begin to focus more the physical dimension, I lose sight of how eternal and unlimited we all are. If we could just tap into more the sacredness of our energy. There was a book that you wrote called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. What did you mean by the more beautiful world look like? I mean, why? did you come up with that title? Because we're talking about what we think would be a better dimension, you know, a better world, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. The reason I call it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible is that Mm -hmm. our minds don't really know that it's possible. Generally speaking, Mm -hmm. our minds think that things will always be more or less the way that they are, that this is reality. But our hearts know better. There's a silent protest in the heart that says it's not supposed to be this way. The world could be more beautiful. Uh, Relationships could be more authentic. Life could be more joyful. We don't have to have a world of ongoing ecocide and uh, Mm -hmm. oppression and racism. And it it doesn't have to be this way. And then the heart carries this knowledge that is amplified in those special moments of life when we have an experience that doesn't fit into normal, you know, an experience of tremendous synchronicity or cooperation or generosity or healing. And in that moment, I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. Thank you for (laughs) showing me 
thank you for sustaining my knowledge and confirming that I'm not just crazy and naive <laughs> for thinking things could be any different because now I'm actually seeing it and this experience doesn't seem like an exception to normal. It seems like a promise of what the world could be. Mm. You know, there's a young boy that I know and a lot of his mother, his parents, everyone's concerned because there seems to be maybe he's so progressive and as a result of being super, super advanced in his times, he's not functioning well in the current state that the world is in. And so they have him on all these meds and these drugs and it's just not doing right. And, you know, it's just so many things are out of whack. The climate right now, the presidential candidates have been interviewed a lot and their insight on the climate change and what are some of the things they're planning to do with the world and with global warming. And so it's an important topic today, although some still deny that it exists. You've said that many of the proposed solutions to climate change rely on the same thinking that brought it to the crisis and cannot move us forward. So you propose a new understanding of ourselves to each other and the natural world, one that relies on what you call interbeing, the new set of values that you based on it. Can you elaborate more on the state of interbeing and why is it necessary for us to address the climate crisis now? Yeah. Well, first, let me say it's not new. It's yeah, a very that's... ancient understanding of the world. It would be new for a mass civilization like ours. That would be new mm -hmm. to bring interbeing, which is a term that I think was probably coined by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's a Buddhist term. And basically, it's saying that it goes beyond interdependence or interconnection to say that our very existence is relational and that therefore mm -hmm. anything that happens to another being or that happens to the world is in some way happening to ourselves as well, that we're not separate. That's really what it says. So as far as climate change goes, the core truth in the climate change discourse is that, or the core realization is that we are not exempt from what we are doing to nature, that it's going to come back to us in some way. Now, I think that our understanding of that is still very limited. And the understanding that you were just referring to uh, that's actually part of the problem is a reductionistic understanding, a carbon reductionism that thinks that mm -hmm. the problem and therefore the solution has everything to do with greenhouse gas emissions. Whereas mm -hmm. the view that I advance in my book is the living planet paradigm, which understands that life creates the conditions for life, that the organs of a living being, this planet, such as the forests, the wetlands, the soil, the water, the elephants, the whales, and the people too, all of these are organs of a living being that if they are compromised and degraded, then even if we cut emissions to zero and install carbon sucking machines and bleach the sky white with sulfur aerosols to cool the temperature, we could do all that, but the planet will still die a death of a million cuts if we can, or die of organ failure if we continue to compromise its organs. Therefore, we need to shift our priorities to regeneration, conservation, protecting the organs, regenerating them, healing them, which will actually sequester carbon dioxide too. But we need to be coming from the place of interbeing and not from the place of let's change the inputs on this geomechanical device called Earth and treat it as an engineering problem. Mm, deep, deep. And, you know, it goes back to the way that we are treating ourselves. I think that the way that we're treating the planet has exactly what you said. It starts with the same kind of a thinking that we got ourselves into this. And so how do we raise, what's your thoughts about raising the quality of thinking? And if we are to raise the quality of our thinking, which I pretty much believe both of 
us know that we do, what would you direct our listeners? What's the practice of raising our awareness to have a more optimistic future for our humanity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess I could say that war on nature that civilization has waged for a long time mirrors a war on the self. And that for me, at least an important step has been to let go of war mentality as applied to myself, like what is the next thing I have to do? How do I have to change? How do I have to do this thing to me? And the alternative is to recognize that I am not the enemy, just like nature is not the enemy. Mm-hmm. That you could just say it's, it's radical self-acceptance, which only mm-hmm. makes sense if the self is sacred, if the self is divine. Just mm-hmm. like it only mm-hmm. makes sense to trust nature if there is some kind of order or intelligence outside of ourselves. Because mm-hmm. yes. in the old story, any order or goodness had to be imposed by human beings onto the world. This goes back thousands of years to the king bringing order to chaos, slaying the lions, cutting down the trees, bringing domesticity onto the wild. Goodness came through a struggle, through a fight, through a conquest. And so that has infiltrated spirituality as well, where it becomes about improving yourself. But if you can trust yourself, if you can understand that your basic nature is not selfishness, you are not programmed by your genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. You are not an economic man um, seeking to maximize rational self-interest. This is not your basic nature. And you can find that part in yourself and recognize it and give it attention and relax into it then there's no fight that needs to be won in order to become a better person. You know what I love? (laughs) I love the fact that, and I'm just putting this in quotes, like normal folks get it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I'm saying this with all due respect and being a little bit humorous, that, you know, we get that. And there are a certain number of us, maybe a 5 or 10% of our tier. They're not thinking like that at all. In your book, Sacred Economics, you explore the economics of separation and the transition to a new kind of money system on a societal and personal level. Why have you been observing a collapse of the current system? And I came across a book about there can be a new economy where we forget, you know, the IRS no longer is needed, banks are no longer needed, that we really begin to have more of the shared economy where we come from a place of our inner world is contented and we have more than enough. So we're able to share. And yet that's not the mode right now. Even those who don't have much When they do get it, they get it and they use it again for maybe self-driven reasons. So share with us a little bit about the new kind of money system that you're foreseeing, especially from your book, Sacred Economics. Maybe I'll talk about the foundation, the Mm -hmm. psychic, psycho-spiritual foundation of that system, because the economic details are a little complicated. Um, It really all comes from recognizing ourselves as beings of gift, recognizing that on some level, we know that life is a gift that we didn't earn our birth, we didn't earn the sun, we didn't earn the ability of plants to grow, we didn't earn water, we didn't earn our mothers taking care of us. It all came as a gift. On some level, we know this, and therefore, we feel gratitude as our default state. Not something that we have to attain, but we can know that gratitude is woven into ourselves, and therefore, what comes from gratitude is the desire to give forward. That's also woven into ourselves. So. 
the question then in the book basically is what kind of economic system would support this innate tendency to want to give, to want to contribute, to want to serve something bigger than yourself? Because the current system opposes that impulse Mm -hmm. and says, well, you know, yeah, it would be nice to do this work, but this beautiful work in the world to restore this ecosystem, to serve the Mm -hmm. homeless, but you can't afford to do that. You have to make Mm -hmm. a living. And so often the things that you do to make a living are contrary to the world that you want to see. So that's the basic question of the book. Uh, Why? Because money is just a story. It's just an agreement. (laughs) Why have we created an agreement that thwarts our best impulses and encourages our worst? And and then what agreement could replace it? I think it just has to do that we start to feed more this inner place of lack, which is a spiritual experience. And once that spiritual energy starts to seep out of the senses, we start to feel like we need to replace some sort of a interpretation of value with things, with people, with yes. stuff. You know what I'm saying? And it still well, never fills the spiritual void. Yeah, and I would say that the spiritual void is also a social void. Mm-hmm. One of the consequences of the story of separation is that we think spirituality is something that you do alone, that you go mm-hmm. into a room or a cave, you meditate, and you achieve something. But if you can picture hunter-gatherer society or even a medieval village, in that setting, it's mostly a gift economy. Every need that you have is met through the generosity of others. If your Mm -hmm. house burns down, the community gets together and helps you rebuild. If you're sick, somebody comes and who loves you and knows you and gives you herbs. And every person you see, you know them. You know their story. You know their face. You know their lineage. Mm -hmm. Every natural being, you know how it functions too. You know what medicine it can be used for. You know what birds live on every tree. And you know you're in this web of relationship. You know that you belong in the world. So you feel secure. And you know Mm -hmm. that no matter how generous you are, no matter how much you give, you'll be taken care of too. In fact, the more yes. generous you are, the more you'll be taken care of. So we don't yes. have that. Somebody in that setting understands that as I give, so shall I receive as a matter of lived experience. But for us, because our lived experience doesn't obviously reflect that, we have to uphold that as a spiritual principle. Sometimes we don't have the energy. Sometimes we're so down on ourselves that we just can't even get up to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Any suggestions what we yeah. should do when you're ever in that we space? We have to take care of each other. We have to take mm-hmm. care of each other. Like maybe the reason you can't get up is because you can't get up. Maybe mm-hmm. this is not something that any of us can do on our own power. But right. maybe right like now, that. maybe right now somebody listening is in that state feeling depressed and feeling depressed because they're depressed. And why can't right. I be energetic and positive? Why don't my affirmations work? Why can't I be positive? And to say, well, you're going to have to try harder, that is an insult because you've tried really hard. Maybe what we need is community. And maybe, Sister Jenna, what you're doing is creating that community where a message can go to people like that when they're in need of help. And we can say, brother, sister, I've been there too. And Mm -hmm. maybe when I'm strong, I can lend you a hand and pull you up spiritually. And someday I'm going to need the same thing so that we together can raise ourselves when maybe alone we all have, and maybe not all, okay? There are some extraordinary people Mm -hmm. out there, but I'll just talk about myself. There are moments Mm -hmm. when I am completely flatlining and I would never get up under my own power except that somebody reaches out at just the right moment with just the right information, just the right message and helps me to do what I couldn't do myself. And then I become able to do it for others. Yeah. Got it. I got it. It doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I like the part where you go, that's where we just really need to help each other. And I think that's the state of the age that we're in, that we're all being called to support each other, sort of like New Zealand. I don't know why I keep thinking about that country, but there's just this energy of the way that, you know, even in Hawaii and these places, honapoa, this thing of just family, Mm -hmm. everyone looking out for each other. And it's become almost a lost culture in the United States. And we've inherited the culture of violence, gotten so used to it. Leave us with something that our listeners can take away with today, that it's all about the efforts that Charles making on himself. That's making him a better version of himself. Yeah. I mean, I I would just return to this last theme that whatever is making me a better version of myself may not be my own efforts. It may be the incredible generosity of this universe as we enter the age of we need each other and leave behind the age of independence, self-sufficiency, and the separate self. We are moving toward, yeah, it's okay to need each other. It's okay to take care of each other. We're all in this together. And Mm -hmm. I don't have to be the spiritual hero. Beautiful. Beautiful. Charles Eisenstein, thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing out there. And hopefully when you come to Washington, we can continue the conversation at the Meditation Museum. Yeah, thank you, Sister Jenna. Really appreciated your energy and your kind words. Yeah, thank you for having me. I I did the same with you, too. All the very best, my brother. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, my friends, that was Charles Eisenstein. You can find out more information about him on Charles Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.org for more information on his deeper thinking and deeper way of looking at things. So, play it back. It's one of those conversations that will take you to a deeper place anyway. It asks you to open your eyes and see a lot more than what you're seeing. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. Here's Open My Eyes from Bliss. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or in iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.